0: Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there, from chaos magic to hermeticism, to meditation, to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the adept initiative is the place to go. The adept initiative is the flagship course on magic.me. And it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You're really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Yes, hello. I'm Jason Louvre, and welcome to another episode of Ultra Culture with me, Today, we're journeying into the mystical realm of curanderismo and the sacred practices of ancestral veneration. Our esteemed guest, Erica Buenaflor, MAJD, is not only a practicing curandera with over two decades of experience, but also a descendant of a long line of grandmother curanderas. With a rich academic background, including a master's degree in religious studies, focusing on Mesoamerican shamanism, Erica bridges the ancient with the contemporary, guiding us on how to reconnect with our ancestors, shape our lives, and deepen our healing journeys. From the profound trance journeys to the art of sacred gardening, from the rituals surrounding death and grief, to the vibrant ceremonies honoring our ancestors, today's conversation promises to be a tapestry of colorful stories, vivid imagery, and deep insights. So whether you're familiar with the world of curanderismo or just stepping into its enchanting embrace now, like me, I had never heard of it before this podcast, prepare to be enlightened and inspired. So without further ado, please welcome Erica Buenaflor to the show. Super, super interesting. Uh, yeah, well, twinsies. Yeah, super interesting. This book was I was full of things I've never heard of, and was full of rituals and practices and all this awesome stuff, including images and photos of a bunch of the rituals you've done in such uh, glamorous places as the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Why don't we just start off? Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your book, which I guess is part of a series, but they're all kind of tied together by the, the same theme?
1: Yes. So thank you, Jason. Uh, thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. So a little bit about myself. Um, I'm a practicing curandera. Curandera. Um, okay my back up like what is what is curandera what is curanderismo right i don't know if your audiences may or may not be familiar with that so curanderismo um it's a it's essentially a shamanic um healing practice that's roots are in the indigenous peoples of the americas right and it's been influenced over the years by many other practices uh judeo-christian caribbean african Moorish, and just it's just integrated but its roots are indigenous people of the Americas, and um, personally, I'm a practicing curandera with well over 25 years of experience, training, teaching, uh, doing limpias, and my my myself personally, it's been. I have four. I had four principal mentors that I worked with. You know, I, I personally, I come from a very long line, a lineage of grandmother curanderas. My great-great-grandmother was a very well-known curandera in Chihuahua, Mexico. Um, You know, lots of people came to her when they were sick, when there was something going on. She was very well-known. And, you know, throughout the years, because this is during the Mexican Revolution, um, throughout the hundreds of years, you know, Mexico became modernized. And those stories of my great-great-grandmother, even though our traditions, I, I was around that we we still, we're still very common. We, we drink, for example, herbal teas, you know, there's certain things that we have for illnesses that we associate with like, okay, take this, you know, for example, chamomile known as manzanilla in Spanish. Um, if you have like an upset stomach or like to clear bad luck, you know, to put a little manzanilla in your eyes, um, you know, to clear any bad luck. There's simple things like that, that I grew up around, you know, I was exposed to, um, so I was definitely exposed with curanderismo. And then in college, I had an opportunity to create... Uh, I had really cool professors to create my own kind of like course. And I started actually learning about curanderismo like more academically as well. Because I was always like... It was, it was very much in my heart. My my first I did my first limpia, which is a sh- like energy cleansing with herbs. Um, I did this one actually with the battery. I was five years old. <laughs> I had one of my, 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 you know, my friends. I said, okay, you know, lay down. I'm going to clear, recharge you. I'm going to clear the energy. So I did that when I was five years old. So um, that was something that I always loved. It was always dear to my heart. Um, As I mentioned, you know, when I went to school, I was exposed to that. And then later on, I met my, my my first two mentors, because I've had four principal mentors that are from the Yucatan, from, from the Yucatan. And something to know about the Yucatan is that the um the people's there and yeah you know, we say maya but there's a lot of indigenous peoples there that don't necessarily outsiders might identify them as maya cuz they have certain you know historical traditions and, but that's something that they've they've looked at that but they're not there's tzotzil tzeltal Lacandon, there's various indigenous people with their with their languages and they've really held on to their indigenous traditions they're very proud of their indigenous traditions so my my first um, two mentors, one was from the Yucatec, you know, was very much rooted, spent all of his life in the Yucatan, um, spoke Yucatec Mayan. And then my the other mentor, Barba, she was also familiar with Nahua traditions, which is more central Mexican traditions, indigenous traditions. And she was also versed in Yucatec Mayan traditions. And that also happened the same with my next two mentors too, Don Fernando and Malina, which were, you know, years later, I, I had other two mentors. So my mentors were very much rooted in indigenous traditions. And that's what I was exposed to, right? And that's how I learned this practice. And, you know, when I, you know, further out, I was also, I also went to grad school too, because I really wanted access to our codices. I wanted to understand what the glyphs meant. I wanted to understand their art, artwork, my artwork, my ancestors' artwork, and So I went back to school and I dove right in into our records. So my training is both, you know, field, it's it's cultural for my family, and it's also academic. So that's my background as a curandera. So prior to when the Spaniards came to the Americas, there were hundreds of different indigenous practices where they did divination work, they did healing work, they Engaged in different shamanic traditions, including shape-shifting. They help people retrieve um, soul pieces that had been lost. They sent soul illnesses. So there's brujería, witchcraft. Um, So a lot of that, there was hundreds of different kinds of specialties, right? And when the Spaniards came here, um, basically, if they liked you, they identified you as a curandera, a curandero somebody who healed, Okay. Okay. It didn't matter what you did because there was, there's a lot of records where, the, for example, there's this, uh, one record where it's, it's a gentleman who was a, a curandero and he was a shapeshifter. He
0: when, when you say shapeshifting, what does that, what does that mean for you?
1: Shapeshifting into an animal.
0: Okay. Shapeshifted
1: into an animal when he would heal. Right. And, um, this, I mean, this is, these are very conservative Spaniards that are talking about these kind of things that, they're like, yeah, he would heal and he would turn into this animal. And that's how he would heal. And he was identified not as a sorcerer, as a shaman, not because of what he did, but because he was liked by the missionary. He was identified by as a curandero. Now, if you were not on the sides of the Spaniards and they didn't like you, you were a sorcerer, hmm. you were a witch. So those terms are very much, and a lot of us from, um, you know, that are Latinx, where and and other people that are, are interested in this, we're reclaiming this. We're reclaiming curandarismo because it has been it has been very much imposed on us of what was a curandara what was, but it is so much in involved in so many different magical shamanic traditions. And you know, as a curandara, you get a lot of us we get trained and so my me personally, I got trained in so learning and working with so many different kinds of things, including what what some would say witchcraft rujeria. um and that's something you learn you have to learn because you have to recognize spiritual illnesses when people come with you with spiritual illnesses um and it could very much just involve just physical kind of illnesses learning to work with certain plants and knowing what plants do certain things for the body how to clear different things in the body um so it's 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 roots i would it, as i mentioned are it's a shamanic healing practice and I, I use the word shamanic because you, a lot of us also learn to work with different realms, non-ordinary realms, so we can see what's what's what happened to the person. And some would say, okay, you're working intuitively. Um, so it's something that it's, you never stop learning. That's one thing. You're always learning. You're always growing. And it's not like you get a degree, like you get a little certification. I'm done. No, I mean for me personally, every time when I when I had we had our place down the Yucatan, I always took the time to go and study with somebody else, learn from somebody else, learn from how to do certain things, what to work. It's something that we continue working on learning. It's a beautiful trade.
0: Wonderful. I'm curious how you you know what was it that called you to this? Uh, you have such an intense personal connection to it, and in reading your book, it's one that developed over time in a lot of fascinating ways that I love to get into in the podcast. But w- what drove you to this in the first place? Was it did you was it a, a total surprise? Did something occur?
1: Various. I mean, it was something that, like as I mentioned, I was five years old when I did my first limpia, which is you know it, it was like a barida, like you cleanse somebody with like a sweep with herbs. Um, but for this one, I use energy work and I use battery. And I was five years old. So it was something, and I I knew when I was um when I was approximately eight years old, I got bougainvillea, The bougainvillea was talking to me and telling me, like, oh, take me, put some lemon and some salt and to to clear a sore throat. And later on, many years later, I learned that's actually what bougainvillea, that's one of the gifts that they can they can mm-hmm. bring. So it was something that was very much in me, it was in my DNA, makeup, right? Um, if anything, I fought it to some degree because it was something that, you know, was like in the past in my family. Like, okay, that's something your grandmother did, your great, great, great grandmother did. That's now, but you're going to be a professional. You know, I, when I, I met my I first two mentors, I was actually in law school. And, um, I, I, I was, this was at the time in 19, well, 1993, there was a, a strike, a hunger strike at UCLA to have a Chicano, Chicanx, um, study department. And, you know, to, to, so we can actually learn about our history, our traditions and cause they were not having it. And, um, there was a hunger strike for that. We didn't get the department just yet. We got a, the Cesar Chavez, uh, center. But during that time, from that time to when I got to UCLA, there were a lot of walkouts. There were a lot of protests. So
2: hmm.
1: I was in the midst of a lot of, and it was also during California where there was this um, not very nice, just I'll just say, it, just very, I'll say, it, nasty governor that was incredibly conservative, very uh, racist. Um, that woke a lot of us up.
0: That was also, I guess, a year after the L.A. riots, so that that was a pretty charged time.
1: Yeah, it was. It was very charged. It was very, very charged. This is well. This is during the time. This was in the time when Pete Wilson was in, and he, um you know, went and he was like very much, you know, for backing Proposition Two Hundred Nine, One Hundred Eighty Seven, and a lot. of It woke a lot of us up. What, what were
0: those this. for? For non-Californians?
1: So Proposition One Hundred Eighty made any kind of um, any kind of services to immigrants, it, it, it pr- prohibited any kind of services aside from emergency services. So basically they would have, we'd, we'd be here just working, but we wouldn't have access to like basic like healthcare, education, like, okay, <laughs> you want to just like pay us mid, like less than minimum. Like it was, it was ridiculous, right? It was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, the, thank God the California Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional, Um, And then Proposition 209 ban affirmative action, uh, which now has been, that's now now the land, that's the land of the law now. Uh, That's oddly,
0: that's oddly topical. Yeah, I I don't want to go too, I don't want to go off too much on a tangent, but I'm curious because I remember those laws uh, at the time. But where, like, is there, what's the legacy of those laws? I I guess, I don't think they're still in effect, but it's things have evolved uh, or devolved since then. Uh, well, what, what is the, how do you, how do you see the legacy of that era?
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's in California personally, we have, it, you know, not to go into like politics, but it's, it's pretty simple. You have people that like, just like they, they like to raise anger. They want to point the finger at somebody else. This is the person is your problem. And yeah, you know, it's the person that has the least power that, that can't vote.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. although they pay more taxes than anyone here in California. Yeah. Um, and, and triple the taxes and they, they pay for things a lot more because they can't afford the things that so they break and they have to pay for things. Anyway, hmm. they pay a lot more taxes than most people. Um, and they, they, they pick our fruits, they pick yeah. so we can have nice things on the table and, um, they're exposed to pesticides and whatnot and horrible, hmm. uh, conditions, temperature conditions, but you know, that's, that's what it is. Um so that's that's the the legacy that's still on when somebody comes in they want to point the finger at someone and it's like they're anti-immigration. Um as far as affirmative action well now we've had uh, we had Trump come in and appoint some justices that now have made uh, now they bound affirmative action. So that's that's a legacy.
0: <laughs> Interesting. I in just from doing this for so long and talking to so many people it's 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 easy to observe that magic is something that people turn to when they don't feel that they have agency or power in other dimensions, uh, part in the use of the word dimension. But, um, is that something if uh, it's interesting that this is coming out of this time period, were you perhaps drawn to this, uh, for that reason? Or did you, you met other people who were drawn to this for the reason of feeling, um, locked out or frustrated in the mundane world?
1: You know, not me personally. I've seen it. I've seen it. I, if anything, I would definitely say that I was not literally, I was not thinking about that okay. because it was expected in my family that I was going to go to school. I was going to be a professional. My mom and my dad were the first in the, in the families to go to college. So yeah, their daughter was definitely going to go to college and become a professional and so there was that expectation, right? Um, but in terms of like, you know, so so I was like going to college, but but the, my reason for going to law school and 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 pursuing and becoming an attorney was very much integrated in social justice. Did I work when I was an attorney? Did I do magic and things like that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: okay so please tell us that sounds like that sounds like a good story uh, as much as you can uh, get away with telling with confidentiality and all and confidentiality and all of that Uh, please tell us about lawyer magic
1: (laughs) well I mean it's 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 one of those things it's uh you know when I could tell like and and I used it with because I'm very much like I was taught very much with my my mentors that personally this is something i was taught is that we never we have to know our place we have to know our place and we can't determine other people's choices for them Mm. um we can we can ask that you know justice we can ask for justice we can ask for the truth to come out so there's there's certain things that we know like i was taught what i could do so that's what i learned to do in my depositions and um and i would do it while i was in the deposition and and you know sometimes it, it was really interesting because some I think it was like some attorneys would be like like they could feel it.
0: <laughs> how so? How do you, how do you mean?
1: <laughs> they, they they became startled and upset like they were making <laughs> objections where I wasn't saying anything that was object like objectionable but they could feel it. Huh. You know that would you know like somebody there was one time where somebody was fibbing um, about uh, doing something at a hospital when my client my client's family passed away. Um and I'm not gonna give the, the whole entire story, but but passed away and the, the the nurses who I was I was being very compassionate towards because I understood they were scared, they um they they panicked, they didn't do what they were the procedure they were supposed to do, and but they were fibbing about it. Mm. So I and I was I was being compassionate, but I was I was you know making sure that they got the truth got out. And the truth got out, but it was it was just the attorney was just like it was like so confused because like, why is this, why is my client you know, the nurse like saying something that, you know, he, I trained him not to say these things,
0: uh-huh. <laughs> Interesting, and,
1: you know, and, and, and he would like be like objecting. And I was like, what is the objection? You know, I, what is the objection? <laughs> what, you know, and it, it was, it was just very like subtle things like that. There was very subtle things like that, but I eventually like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not really wanting it. Just me. I, I like doing what I like. As a curandera, I did I did great work. I did great social justice. You know, thank God I did great work in social justice um, for a decade. And um, I love what I do in my practice as a curandera. Um this is this is my this is my love. I love working with people, I love people, helping people realize something that that moved through things, difficulties, healed through various kinds of traumas on a soul level on a spiritual level. So that's why I like to use my gifts now.
0: Do you do this professionally full-time now? I mean, I know you do it professionally, but is it, is it your full-time job?
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, wow. okay. 2012.
0: So, so what that, that's fascinating. Well,
1: actually, 2012 for, for a few years, I did do contract work. So okay. I take that back. I'd say maybe I stopped doing contract work. Maybe like I would say 2014, maybe 15.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So, so let's talk about this because I think this is something that is going to be of a lot of interest to the, the, Listeners, I've got a huge list of questions, by the way, so I've got tons of questions on on topic, but some of what you're saying is so interesting, I've got to, I've got to kind of dig into it. Um, I think a lot of people that listen to my show, uh, and I think just people who are in the kind of spiritual world in general, I've heard this story a lot of people who are kind of stuck in the corporate world or stuck in a job that they hate, and they may be very successful. In fact, in most cases, they are. Um, But they yearn to kind of leave the corporate world and do something more meaningful, whether that's, you know, being some type of artist, whether that's uh, in some cases, you know, becoming a yoga teacher or, um, you know, doing a YouTube channel or something like that. But I think that this is a very, very common transition that people seem to have to make at some point, uh, and it's very stressful. And I think when people are on that precipice where they don't know if they're going to jump into the, the great unknown, uh, maybe you can share some, some of your experience there, because I, I imagine that going from a law career to doing this must've been a little intimidating.
1: Well, you know, it was, it was something that, cause after I met my first, after my, my first mentor, I was, um it was, I had already completed my first year in law school and my first mentor, Don Tomas, I remember after the first limpia, we were having a platica, a heart-straightening talk. And, you know, he was, this is when I was sharing him what I was doing, because he was interested like, oh, what are you doing? And he he already sensed that I, I had that healing, that I, and I knew a lot about curanderismo. So he's like, oh, so... You know, mija, like, like, you know, what do you do? What do you, what are you going to be doing? And I said, him oh, I'm also going to be an attorney, and he just began, just like, with this huge, gregarious laugh, like, you know, like, like, oh, you're not going to enjoy it. That's hmm. you're you're a like your great great grandmother. You're you're not going to enjoy it. And I looked at him, and I just remember just being like, okay, but I'm going to be an attorney. <laughs> right. You know, it's just that's what I'm going to do, and because I. At the time, I was just very much like, oh, you know, I'm going to change the world, blah, 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 like very idealistic. And um, and the next thing I know, and then I also later on, I met my my next mentor, Barbara, shortly thereafter. And the next thing I know, I was going to the Yucatan because I had a little more money at that time. And I was able to go there and continue my mentorship with them. So I was going there like approximately every four to six months to continue my mentorship with them. I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing. It was not like, oh, I'm going to be a curandera. It was just something that fulfilled my heart. And it was also very much too about, for for many of us BIPOC folks and Latinx is that it's very much about reclaiming ourselves because we have been disassociated from our indigenous traditions, many of us. And it's, it's like coming home to that. You know, 500 years of, having indigenous erasures from our culture, like we talk about it, but like, oh no, no, but you're more Spanish, you know? And it's and it's coming back to that. It's like, feel like you're coming home. Mm-hmm. Feel like, uh, like soul pieces are coming back to us. And I think more that's why I was doing, because it was something that was incredibly interesting. It was, I was passionate about it. I loved it, but it was more healing for me, um, if anything you know it was like oh it was it was, and because also too as i share in my book um you know uh Rats of Curanderismo, i grew up being told like oh if you're lucky you're not going to look like your father you're not going to look like an indio like an indigenous like an indigenous person hmm. you know um being told that like my 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 last name this, that made me sound like a wetback um it, like a lot of shame for for being brown you know and i, I was a lot like then then and, and feeling that so a lot of that is very much coming back reclaiming ourselves more than anything and i think that's what draws a lot of us to it is it it reclaiming a part of us that we didn't know that was missing and mm-hmm. i didn't know it was missing until i i started practicing in that and i think that's what rooted me in doing this initially and then um and then the next thing i know in 2005 and this is when i was already an attorney and I was still mentoring at that time. I was still learning about these traditions. I was hiking and I fell off a cliff. Whoa. I Thanks. Being air, yeah, I woke up being airlifted. What
0: the hell? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I am am yeah. i shouldn't laugh. I know you're okay now, so I can kind of see where the story is going. I, I apologize, yeah. but that's yeah. pretty dramatic.
1: No, no, no worries. Um, three days later, I found out I had a skull fracture, a brain hemorrhage. Jeez. Let they see dislocated two vertebrae in my back fractured. I completely shattered my coccyx. Left leg, I fractured it in three places. Right leg, knee down, all of my bone shattered and came out of my heel. Um, Okay. And yeah, and uh, I knew at that that that, at that moment in time when I was told everything that was wrong with me was when I finally embraced my don which is a, it's basically the gift of healing from God. That's what it's called in Codanderismo traditions in Spanish. I just said, yep, that's I totally embrace it. I don't doubt it anymore. This is, I I totally do. Cause I knew if I didn't, I was going to, I was going to be handicapped the rest of my life. And I was in a wheelchair for almost a year. um, But I put into practice everything that I learned from my mentors and having an experience like that really began make me question whether I wanted to continue doing something that I was losing passion for
2: hmm.
1: you know it, it's it's I just it, it, but that was something that I, I I know that maybe I I agree to <laughs> I'm, I'm like okay let me now agree to more graceful things please and thank you um but maybe that's that we say you know we agree to certain things maybe I agree to because I was incredibly stubborn. And I wasn't going to leave the practice until like something like really shook me, something yeah. like that, that made me go, okay, do you That's really so interesting." to do something where you're going to be regretting that you never did something that you truly loved and were passionate about?
0: Yeah. It's amazing how these things happen in, in people's lives. Um, and, and I've heard stories about car crashes. I've heard stories about, you know, and it's, it seems to be fairly similar where, Somebody gets diverted by a dramatic incident from the path that they thought was right for them. But how have you come to interpret this incident since? I mean, it, it, if I'm right, and tell me if I'm not, it sounds like you kind of came to see your law degree as something that was not um, not just not for you, but maybe it was a mask you were wearing and that this was closer to your your true self. Is this something that you've come to mythologize or see in spiritual terms or attach meaning to
1: Well I mean I I don't know if I looked at I, I'm very grateful I went to law school I don't regret any part of it Um it was it was a very difficult experience I felt like an alien while I was in law school Um in many different kind of ways and I think a lot of bipolars um uh, they 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 share similar stories about that maybe not so much now I don't know, but I, I still have clients that are going to law school. I don't regret any of it because it was it. I became, I I developed a very thick, thick skin, and to do this work as a curandera, because we do work with shadow aspects, and we do work with a lot of things that are could be heavy, could be dense. You got to have like a really thick skin, and you got to be a badass. Okay, you know in Spanish we call it you got to be a chingona. So I think if anything, those experiences as being an attorney really got me to a point of being a badass. And like, I could like look at and being loving, of course, and compassionate, but at the same time being a no nonsense, like, okay, you want this? How much do you want this? This is what it's going to be. You want to do this? Let's make it work. But this is what it's going to look like. What are you ready to put into it? You know, so I think at that, all those things culminated to get me to where I am today. I mean, it wasn't, I I couldn't do what I wanted to do as the, as the attorney, you know, there were like just limitations in terms of what I can do. I remember there was one lady who um, called me one time. Uh, Her, her husband had just uh, actually her husband for, had been working here in the States. He was, he was an immigrant. He just worked here and he had finally raised enough money to have his wife and his son move here to the States with them. And he was working at a work site where the employer wasn't didn't provide any kind of safety precautions. Not even, I mean, like nothing. He was up on on a roof and he did like nothing. No nets, nothing. They were immigrants. So what okay. what, what do we need safety precautions for, oh, I guess? I he fell backwards and uh, cracked his head. Okay. He, he cracked his head and got brain hemorrhage. And uh, you know, got a brain uh, so it was, it was a pretty bad situation. I remember one time his, his wife who, you know, she was our client, um, called me and it wasn't about me as the attorney. It was me because she wanted me to like work with her, to hold space with her, to hold, to pray with her. And it was that point in time that I really wanted to like offer her a limpia. I really wanted to offer her a platica. I really wanted to offer her like my role as a curandera and like take off my hat as the attorney and be like, you know what let me bring you in for a session as a curandera, but i I couldn't do that so and that, was, that that's when it like it just that like very stark contrast of my limitations of what I wanted to do I couldn't do as the attorney
0: interesting so what you're talking about uh, a session and you mentioned some some specific terminology there. What is this? What what is a uh, a session with you like? I mean, like, what is this practice as you do it? I mean, are you leading people through rituals? Are you asking them to connect with their ancestors? Are you do, doing healing work? What, what kind of what is the gestalt of what you're bringing to people?
1: So there's different things, but essentially, it usually starts with what is known as a plática. A plática in these indigenous traditions was um, known as a heart straightening talk, that you release what was weighing heavy in your heart, and it's not like it's not just like therapy, because when the person is talking, you know, you're allowing yourself to be an open channel, so you get intuitive insight as to what is going on. And of course, you don't interrupt the person, obviously, um, but you get that insight and you get an understanding of what else needs to be done. You know, after after they they share. You know, it's like, I, me personally, what I do is like, okay, this is what I'm getting. This is what I think would be really good. It could be anything from a soul retrieval. It could be anything from a soul release. Maybe they got someone, got a piece of someone who passed away that it's, it's, it's time to let that soul piece go. They're ready to let that piece go because it's weighing heavy. It's continuously weighing heavy on their heart. It could be anything like they want to connect with their ancestors. Um, And it's various different kinds of traditions too. Um, it could be something that to clear a curse, because I sense that there's a curse, um, to rescript something, and also also to provide different kinds of limpias, which could be a cleansing with different kinds of herbs. What we call what we do is we we do a limpia also with a level, the egg. It could be something that they have a parasite attached to them. Um and if it's and if it's done remotely, it could be something where, you know, I guide someone to to do a limpia with them to do a cleansing both physically and energetically. And I guide them through it Um, because it could be done in person and remote. So it always starts out with the platica, like letting the person release what's weighing heavy in their heart. And then, you know, we share, we get an agreement of like what we're going to do, what's going to happen. It could be, it could be a ceremony. It could be like, we do, I do a fire right for them and they release what needs to be done in the fire. It just, it just varies. And it's, I always get the, the other person's like, okay, does this feel good to you? Do, do you want to do this? Is it something that you feel complete with? And we get an agreement. We get an alignment in terms of, is this something that they want? Is it addressing something that they want? And then, you know, I'll get other insights. So it's something that's kind of the gist of it when it's a one-on-one.
0: Interesting. Let's talk about the tradition. Then, oh, you know, what, one ahead.
1: aspect too, mm-hmm. one other aspect too, that's a critical a critical thing too, is I always give them homework always give them homework i and in that homework i teach them how to do certain things so for example if it's like a velacion which is candle work i'll teach them how to write a petition how to do you know different formations with candles for different kinds of intentions to address different kinds of things i'll teach them how to do baños bass i'll you know i'll, I'll teach them how to work with the sun to get tonali soul energy so the homework is very important because it also teaches them and it also makes them accountable to continue to do their work.
0: I'm really curious at the overlap point between the work you're doing and reclaiming and just modern people and standard consensus reality. Uh, what has that interface been like? I mean, how do people find out about you? How do they uh, come to do work with you? Are these already spiritually inclined people? Or are they totally not? And kind of what is that collision point like?
1: Well, one of the things is that I always, you know, I, you know, my ancestors always bring me ideal clients and what seems to be ideal, um, are people who are ready. <laughs> people that are ready, like, okay, yeah, I, I, I've done this, I've done this kind of work. I want to try something else. Like for example, there was this beautiful lady who I had, I, I did a divinate and I do different things. I also do divination readings with um, Mr. American Oracle cards, um, divination, their divinatory day signs. And she, uh, she is practicing Orifa, which is more of a Caribbean, um, African tradition, Latinx uh, tradition. And her, one of her teachers told her that she should also maybe learn other traditions because she also has some roots in Latinx, uh, tradition. So, or, or, or ancestral traditions, I should say. And, um, she just was like, I don't know. I was guided to bring here. This is what I'm going to do. So I began asking questions and as she's talking and just like, I, I picked up right away. It's like, okay. I asked her, so how's romance? How's this? And she it was, and I got like, okay, she has this huge wall. She keeps up this huge wall. She's not going to go on this tradition. And I began talking and then, you know, shortly thereafter there was like laughing, there was crying. It was, um, cause I'm very direct and I do it with love, but I'm very direct. I, I, I will, it's like, okay, it's an hour. Let's get to it. I'm going to like hit the points. I'm, I'm, I'm loving, but I'm a very direct person. <laughs> and, you know, she laughed, she cried. She was like, oh my God, you know, okay, let's, it was, it was something that she didn't know why she, she came to me, but she was guided to. And, and she's like, then I told her, I'm like, okay, well, you need to do some soul retrieval work because this Experience that you had when you were married, and the, the shame that you had for what you allowed, you need to welcome and you need to acknowledge her and say that it's okay and heal that part of yourself because it's not going. If you don't heal that part of yourself, it's not going to permit you to move forward in this relationship. And that, you know, I try not to be like this. You know, I'm going to pull like I'm going to be just very blunt um, and, and curse. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I don't pull a rabbit out of my ass where I'm gonna be like, I'm going to tell you your story. I'm going to tell you your future. I don't do that. I'm, I also. Have people, I want to make sure that I'm addressing what people want to be addressed and need to be addressed and that they're ready for it. So I ask them questions that I kind of poke around and when I feel that they're ready, I mention certain things and if they allow it, I'll go deeper. and I go to a space where it's like a dance. you know, okay, what you ready for? Let's dance, let's dance. And it's kind of like like that kind of thing. So whether someone's familiar with this, they may come, I'll ask questions. I'll see what they're ready for. They may be ready for certain things and we'll go to what is in alignment for them at that time.
0: Interesting. What would you say some of the, some of the craziest things that have happened to you or that you have witnessed or that you've done in working with clients? Uh, And yes, by the way, I am. Definitely fishing for exciting stories here because they're great for podcasts. Uh, anything that people can visualize in their mind like they're listening to a radio play is always gold. But whether it's kind of working with trance states or building altars or just straight up magic, um, what are some experiences that come to mind that really were out of left field and, and stayed with you?
1: I mean, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of stories that I will say um, – working with clients that, um, I see that those, those are some of like kind of scary. <laughs> so I'm going to like share something that's a little lighter, but, but fun.
0: Oh, please, um, please share the scary one too, but uh, we can start uh, with the light one or as much as you're, you're comfortable with. That sounds, that sounds interesting.
1: Yeah. No, cause those scary ones, they, they, they can bring in something. So, uh, yeah, like they're, 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 you know, cause there's some people that come to me and they, they have had like some serious, serious traumas and I'm my door is welcome and it's, it's loving. It's like, let's do this. Let's clear this. Um, so there was one that I shared in my book that, um, this is, this is something that was really super cool back in 1999. Um, I was, I was, I woke up and I was the full moon that night and I'm, I, I I just knew I was going to be going to a Damasco that evening. And I, I went and my, my, the person who was the gentleman who was facilitating the mascots for this place wasn't actually going to be having a, a full moon ceremony. So I offered, I said, Oh, you know, I'll, I'll go and get the herbs for you in town. No problem. And it's like, Oh, well, I need some people, some more people to join in. And it just so happened that there were three other people that overheard and they all wanted to be a part of it. So it's very synchronistic. Right. And, um, and I was, I was, I went there and I didn't, I wasn't planning on ongoing shopping, so I didn't have, I think I had like maybe 10 bucks on me, but I had enough to get the herbs. So I went to the store and I got the herbs. And this was back in 1999, where this little town going now known as um, what's well back known, it was known that, as that as well. But it was, it was a very different little town back in 1999. It was called Playa del Carmen. It's called Playa del Carmen. And um, it was a very like quiet town. It had one street where all the stores were at, like one main street. That's the other stores, but like t- like where the, the tourists would go, right? And there was like maybe like two or three restaurants. It was it was very quiet. It was very beautiful. It was, you know, right next to the Caribbean Sea. It was beautiful. And um, I go to the store, I get the herbs. And earlier that week, I had seen these beautiful medicine bundles. They're, they're hides, sacred hides of creation scenes, my creation scenes. And one of them that I fell in love with was, it was maybe, it was, it was relatively small. It was about $75 and like, oh, that's beautiful. That's nice. And, um, and I walked into this store that I had never seen. And it was just this amazing store that had all these different rattles and, um, copaleros, which are, uh, they're razors or sensors where you build, you, you, you burn your charcoal tablets and your resins on, um, and it had uh, drums, it had different hides and alt staffs, it, all these amazing, beautiful, sacred tools. And I was just in heaven, right? And I went over to this medicine bundle and I began looking at it. It had it was a it was an image of the uh, calendar round with all the different Maya day signs and the, the solar calendar as well. And I began remembering, and I had never studied these, these signs before. I began remembering what they meant. Um, I began remembering what their alignment was. And the lady who owned the store, you know, she was next to me. And I began remembering and I began telling her what I remember. And she looked at me. And she just looked at me with this twinkle in her eye, smiling. Like I was supposed to be remembering this. And it was just like this flash of light just came to my my third eye. And it was just incredible experience. I was just like, oh my goodness. It was, it, it was like I was getting downloaded with this information. And, um, and I looked at her kind of nervous because this medicine bundle was about, three, I would say maybe three or four times the size as the one that I had seen a few days before that. So it was way more, you know, price way more than $75. I had less than $10 on me at that point. And I just nervously asked her like, how much is this? And she looked at me and she just smiled. She just said, how much do you have? Because she knew I had fallen in love with it. And I pulled everything I had in my pocket and I had, you know, I had, I don't know, $9 or something in change. And she just said, it's yours. So the net, you know, that night I took it into the, the, the tamaska, the sweat lodge ceremony, had this amazing experience at the full moon. So the next day I go back into town looking for the store to repay the, to pay her the difference, because this is what these people make a living off of, right? This is not, this is their, their livelihood, mm-hmm. Uh, so I went back to pay her the difference for the store, went back in there with money and I'm walking up and down the same street for, for a few, good few hours. Right. And I'm asking people where this store is at. And it's just one street that has one store. Like all <laughs> the stores are at that store was gone.
0: What, this was, gone. The, was, was it, this was the same day Did I hear that correctly? The
1: next day. The next
0: day, day. what the the hell?
1: Next day, (laughs) that store was gone. It was gone, and I asked everybody. I was asking people, "Where is the store?" And everybody was like, "No, we have no store like that."
0: Oh my god, that's bizarre.
1: I was be sober the whole time, too. By the way,
0: okay. What do you make of that?
1: Um, What I make of that, my ancestors wanted me to have that. I mean, that was like that. That that still is one of my most favorite bundles, and I always go to it. I work with it, you know. I, I I work with it when I do dreams. I do dream work. I put it on my pillow. I sleep with it. I get insight um, when I want to bring something in. I, I charge it. I work and I and I talk more about this in the book, you know, how to do that. But I I that just is something my ancestors were like, really starting to put into my um, sacred tool, you know, medicine cabinet, so to speak, of like. Mija, like you need to have these things because your ancestors had this. We had these things. You need to have these things and start working with these traditions again. Hmm. You know, we know you want, you want, you're going to be an attorney and all that, but you still need to have these things.
0: (laughs) Damn. All right. That's a, that's a wild story. That's totally wild. So no no chance of scary stories, huh? Not even like a a slightly scary story. It's like a little, well, little, a little, with, a little with, scary. I
1: will say this with, with with one of my mentors that I was at. Um, you know, it was a he was doing a a cleansing, a limpia. and I, you know, this this man, uh, Don Fernando, he was he was a really like he was a badass. He was oh my god, he was an amazing amazing gentleman. Um, he there was a, a gentleman that had a terminal illness and you know he he was it was it's a small town so people like when they heard of things like oh this person's a shapeshifter these traditions ha- were not gone of of shapeshifting it was not something that had like this was common this is not something that like oh what are you talking about that's crazy this is more um it was something more accepted so and was discussed and it was believed that this uh, one of the ladies who was a bruja, a sorceress, actually a sorceress more, and that's what he identified her as, um, and shapeshifter, uh, put um hex on him. And um, he obtained a terminal illness. And, um, I, you know, I'd go there and I'd get ninjas myself. And sometimes he would, he would basically like have me stay to get things for him. And at the same time, he was teaching me. Um, that's, that's how I learned. It was just like, Oh, meha like, can you get me this? Like, let me show you this. You need to be here for this. And okay. So I, he, you know, I was there and I was helping him facilitate this, this fire link for him. And when he was, it was in this pot and he had all these herbs in it and it had copal in it and, this when he was doing the clearing on this gentleman he was doing it with what's what's sipche? it's it's a s-i-p-c-h-e this is one of the plants that is very common in the Yucatec mine and with the Yucatec mine that they used to cleanse people do limpias with and it was a, a tree bench with all these leaves and you know he he you know uh so he he blew it's called, it's called a soplada in spanish he blew um you know this cleansing water over him and then started cleansing him with a siche like kind of like like sweeping right like sweeping him and and cleansing it and then um, the fire began burning at the same time too and when he threw the um, the leaves in there the fire was like it jumped like as tall as the gentleman Whoa. I mean it was it was like it was like there was a like it like there was a something was getting cleared it was like it was like some kind of entity or something was like being cleared from the fire And my teacher was called like, like cool as a cat. Like he was just so cool, like so collected. He was just like saying the prayers, like throwing, throwing the, er, like cleansing herbs in the fire, like having it go down and cleanse. And then like the fire started whirling. He started whirling and we were all watching it. Like, Holy moly, is he going to bring this place down? (laughs) Is the fire? Like going to just, because it was just like, and, and you know, this, this man actually um, lived he lived. Um. He 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 healed. Like it was, um, it was uh, It was you know pretty clear. It was a supernatural illnesses that would that was placed on him. But it was something that was um, it's 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 really beautiful. These, these traditions are really beautiful because there's not a question of can this be done. It's does the per the person have the faith to do it? That's why they're going to this person. The person that is facilitating this knows that with and they're they use they as I mentioned, they, they've incorporated a lot of Christian Catholic specifically traditions So they may call upon my, my deities. They may call on God. They may call, call on Jesus. They may call on, you know, that it's, it's integrating those different traditions as they're, uh, you know, throwing um, as he was throwing this into the herbs, into the fire, which is common um, bringing in different traditions, so to speak and using it to clear the, um, Different kinds of energies.
0: Very interesting. Very cool. I want to get into some of the technicals of the system. And the first question I have, and this is just for my own sake, I want to be completely clear about this: uh, you identify the tradition as Mesoamerican, but it, would it, I mean would it be fair to say that we're talking about Mayan, or is it a collection of traditions, or it's like Toltec, uh, um, Olmec, and things like that? I mean, is this one? one tradition or it's like a cluster of traditions from that area
1: so mesoamerica is definitely a cluster of traditions as i as i mentioned in the book um i, I talk about everything going back to uh, teotihuacan which is a, a beautiful amazing city state back in the early um 300 you know common era uh, going to teotihuacan i would say that that's some Of course, Olmec too, going earlier back to that as well, Hmm. going all the way from different Maya traditions to uh, Zapotec, various. So so Central Mexican, Maya traditions, um, all the way to the Aztec. And a lot of us, we have reclaimed that term because that term was imposed on us. So we're like, okay, we're going to go ahead and we're going to define what Mesoamerica is. Okay, <laughs> let us okay. educate you. <laughs>
0: Got it. So, how do you define it?
1: Yeah, it's a com- it's a combination of it's Mesoamerican. It in- integrates um, Central Mexican and Maya traditions too. It, it's something that is you can see a lot of the different styles in the architecture, in the writing, and that's why it's identified as Mesoamerican because there's there's underlying um, it's, it's all these beautiful, beautiful nu- nuances and differences, divergences. And at the same time, you see patterns, patterns of art, culture, of design, of practices that are woven in. So you can see the patterns. And that's what's been we redefined it and reclaimed that this is Mesoamerica. Um, yeah. And a lot of progressive academics have done this as well, like redefine that.
0: Interesting. So I want to ask you about cosmology, but my first question is going to have to be, do all of these cultures share cosmology or are there maybe with minor differences uh, or is there are there clashing cosmologies at all?
1: Well, can you define what cosmology is? Because okay, I, I, great. I, it's used in so many different ways, please.
0: Perfect. Thank yeah. You. Well, I was particularly, um, my ears went up at the beginning of the inter- interview when you said that you wanted access to the codices and glyphs of um some of the, some of these cultures. And this these systems are so unbelievably beautiful and complex and occult and I, I mean, you know, just the I've always been unbelievably impressed by the mapping of time and how intricate it got. And I don't know anything about it, but it's it's uh I don't know anything anything about it actually. Um, but I, I'm i basically what I'm trying to ask you is to talk about the cosmology of the system and what it is and what the kind of uh, like the gods uh, and um, the kind of conception of the universe and the, the big story that is told with the the tradition. But I wanted to, you know, preempt that by saying just by making sure that I'm we're, if we're talking about one tradition or a bunch and if there's a bunch of different cosmologies.
1: So one thing to be very um to be to be very like, you know, just to just to be very clear about mm-hmm. one of the things is that, as I explain in, in my book, Veneration Rites, is is that ancestor worship was just as important, if not more important, than deity worship. Hmm. Okay. And there was a lot of conflation with ancestors and deities, right? One could become a deity, like a first, a founding mother, a father and then become an ancestor. One was an ancestor that was also known as a deity. One could be conflated as one or two. Like, for example, there is one mythology that uh, Moctezuma, Moctezuma II was one of the, one of, not the last ruler, but one of the last rulers of the Aztec Empire, really um, the Mexica. And uh, he, he was, there were various prophecies that came forward. One of them, there was a, for example, there was uh, purple gallin gallin that that was a bird that had that came in that had an, a mirror, so to speak. Not well, it was a mirror. They saw it as a mirror, and they saw the Spaniards arriving at the coast. When they did arrive, there was also a two headed man that came and told them that the Spaniards were arriving. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were also there was also a comet that was burning in the sky for a year that prophesied the Spaniards coming. So there were, and there were a lot of different prophecies or just some of the most well-known prophecies that are, that have been documented. Um, And one of the things, Moksuma, you know, uh, too, he was, he was, yeah, he was concerned. (laughs) You know, when you have like your answer, when you have all of your most, you know, prolific seers telling you that of an impending doom, um, that they're coming to come and and basically change things and uproot your world, you become a little disturbed, a little concerned, yeah. right? Or very concerned. <laughs> yeah. So he he got um, sixty of his of, of the most skilled uh, sorcerers, shamans, like seers, and he sent them to uh, what is known as Guatepo which is a place where um, the ancestors said could still be found. And keep in mind that when we say ancestors, they were also known as deities that were also ancestors. There was not necessarily like they weren't, there wasn't this like very clear separation that we have in more Western traditions. There was just, we have a lot of conflations and like we see things more as energies, sacred energies than rather, there, there's certain personifications of that and how they mean, but it's, it's a little bit more, um, it's 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 shamanic you know it's it's you're living in, in, in a space where you're in a quantum like you would think a quantum reality you're not necessarily just in one space where things are mm-hmm, linear mm-hmm. and things everything is separate right mm-hmm. so just keeping in mind when i'm sharing this story this mythology so he sends them to hill which is a place of origin and um this is where they came the ancestors are still there to get counsel in terms of what to do about the spaniards coming so they go and um, they, they they go to the, one of the places in in that one of the cities of, of, of Tula, which is one of the the prior cities, the Toltec, and they're looking for the ancestors. They're looking for the seven caves. They're looking for the ancestors, and and you know the, they're they're guided to take a ravine and go across, and they see the mother of one of their principal deities, who is by the way to also recognize as a ancestor as a man in one of the codices so again it's, it's, it was a deity it's um so this is important to understand right okay so they go there and um they meet his mother got who is upset like hey son you were supposed to come back here <laughs> you left and you went to start this great city but you're supposed to come back here and they go there with different offerings, and um, the mother is not necessarily happy that her son's not coming back. But that was one of the things that she asked: her son needed to come back. So you know, the guides that were that did survive came back with that message, and it wasn't a good message because Moctezuma too wasn't about to uproot the city to go back to Guatepoquil, the space of origins. So in this cosmology, what they saw is they saw everything originating as. What was known as different um, s- soul energies, right? And it was it, it has different names and different um, you know. It, it, for example, there's in Nahuatl, they have the soul energy of Tonali, which is concentrated in the head. In the in a human being, it's also in our human in a human being too, and it's concentrated in the head. They have the Teolia, which is concentrated in the heart. There's the Ichoro, which is concentrated in the abdomen. And these are soul energies that basically help someone to come, come alive, to stay healthy. Mm. And they are energies that are comprised of ancestors. They are energies comprised of the universe. They are what makes the world go around. They're constantly rebalancing it's, themselves. They're constantly making things grow. They come from the sun. They come from the cardinal spaces. So it's more about soul energies and understanding of how to work with soul energies and that is that is also still the essence too of dismo. like to do a body there's a reason we focus a lot on on working with the head cleansing the head there's a reason why we focus on cleansing the heart space there's a reason why we focus on cleansing the abdominal those things are still traditions grounded in this understanding of energy and soul energies and what makes us ill what can be taken, like, for example, tonali, when someone experiences a trauma, um, tonali, you know, that person's soul energies would leave. And this is, you know, this is what I, I talk about in veneration rights curanderismo, what they did when someone would pass away is they did various rites, And that was a big thing that they did, they focus on this too, of ensuring that those that had passed away had strong soul energies, because some of these, so it's, it's even rulers would eventually become even deities, okay, and recognized as deities. Could also become an hypothesis of the sun, of the moon, and become part of the sun. Could be cosmic creation cycles. So there's a lot of that conflation of this understanding that what you wanted to do, someone passed, is you wanted to ensure, one, that when they passed, you did various rituals, for example, you got a lock of the person's hair. You got um, a jade stone, and this is this is something they would put put the jade stone over the, the the head to ensure, and they would put it on their their heart to ensure that one that that stone that they could find there was, they could that that was part of the teolía that there was a jaguar that could come and take it from you, a soul injury that could come take it from you, and you could trade it off so you could keep your soul energy right so they wanted to make sure they did all these various rituals that if you had traumas, they would do a platica to make sure that you would balance any wrongdoings. So you had stronger soul energies in the afterlife, right? Um, And, and also in their afterlife too, because after you pass away, you want to make sure that your ancestors, your rulers, because ancestors weren't just blood. They could also be vocational. They could be community leaders. They could be various kinds of leaders. They wanted to make sure that they had strong energies, strong soul energies, because if they had strong soul energies, guess what? They could intervene more readily on their heirs, on their, those who were venerating them on their behalf. So it's a very much, the cosmology was very much grounded in understanding of how to work with these soul energies. And there were different days that were, that were charged with different kinds of tonali different kinds of soul energies and there were readings that were done that when someone came in at a certain day, they had certain proclivities for different things, kind of like the astrology that we have in Western um, to some degree, but it was, it was, a, I don't know that of course different. Cause it's its own thing. Um, and there was a reading of names too, because if you took on an ancestors name, you got the ancestors soul energy. So it was, very much grounded in knowing and understanding how to work with these soul energies how to work with them and how to create with them how to clear with them
0: this is super yeah. fascinating okay uh that is all awesome information what is the role of time in this system in these systems how is it seen How is it worked with
1: um so time okay so time you know one of the things that that, that that's I don't know. For me, this gives, I'm a, I'm a very visual person. I like to, I understand things when I think, when I see things visually and this is something that helped me visually to see it was that their books like look like an accordion. Okay. And, and their stories aren't linear. <laughs> it's not like, like for example, like one very one that, that has, that has been around for that a lot of people have access to is like, for example, the Popol Vuh. Mm -hmm. Um, which is is a a story of of, of creation and recreation. Um, They're not linear. So they don't necessarily start from in the beginning. They may start somewhere in the middle and may go to the beginning and they go somewhere back in the middle ending big. So in the sense of, you know, they had two calendars they had the Maya, for example, they had a long count calendar and they had a calendar round. Everybody in Mesoamerica had a calendar round. They all had that, which consisted of two calendars. One was a solar calendar, which was comprised of 360 days plus five liminal days. Okay. So you had that and you also had a divinatory calendar in central Mexico. It's known as a Tanapahuali in Maya, what has been identified by um, mainly anthropologists. They, they, they took on that term. And a lot of Maya have also reappropriated that term, the Solkin. Um, That's the divinatory. So basically when there were, their books would have dates. The Maya, for example, had the long count calendar and they had the round calendar followed by that. The round calendar was composed of, some were composed often of solar so you had specific dates. And they had divinatory calendar when when you had a certain sign, certain things would happen at that time. So they looked at, they were statisticians in looking at time. They were looking at probabilities like, okay, when this happened on this day in so many years and so many times this happened, we had a hurricane, we had good, you know, we had mildew, we had our all our, our like, crops, they, they died, or we had, uh, we were abundant in this. So they were very much, they looked at time, not necessarily how we look at it in a space where it was just simply linear time and space and looked at it to understand what are the probabilities of something can happen and what can I do magically to change that.
0: That is so effing cool. That's, that's amazing. And, um, I've always been fascinated by that and that was, uh, I'm even more interested now that you've explained it in more detail. Um, what were they, how were they measuring time? Was it based on planetary movements or, or something else or did they measure it?
1: So, um, you know, they had, so they had, for example, the, um, calendar round, they had king. Um, they had a day they had uh, that was, that was a day that was, you know, th- then there were, there were a lot of variances with that too. Cause I talk about that too, actually in my third book, what was a day was different for different peoples too. And what started the day was different too, depending on if you were, you know, working with the moon, a lot of people work more, more, a than of indigenous people, they were people of the sun. So they, had more of a four-quarter period where they um, looked at, they based it off from when the moon came, when the moon set. So they based it on that. Some of it did. So it wasn't necessarily the same with everybody. Some of the things that we see, some patterns, you can say, undergird, like undergirding patterns within all of it is, is that there was definitely a recognition because they they lived by the sun. Everybody did. Everybody did. And you know, the moons were, were very much also prominent too. But the moons, they were there were longer phases. There was a waxy moon, waning the sun, the sun was coming out every day, right? So the moons they had their, their specific phases. So they they structured a lot of their rites, a lot of what was done. So they may start it at a certain part. Some of it they started their day at noon. You know, some of it they started in the morning. So it didn't necessarily mean, but it was basically around the sun. It was very much around the sun of, um, and that's how they, and and the different periods that also changed too with the different people. So, but what we do see a thread there that they definitely paid attention to what was going on with the sun.
0: That 365 days or 360 day solar calendar, was that developed in isolation? It was before European contact. Yes. That's, 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 that's really interesting. That's incredible. Uh, or maybe yeah. not, maybe everyone's just observing, clearly observing and paying attention to the same thing.
1: Yeah. And then this, that, that actually goes back, um, well, that goes back to mine. Then they had the long count calendar. that went back to the Olmec and so, yeah, that, that goes way back. Our calendars go way, way back.
0: <laughs> Interesting. So that moment of, um, that moment of violence and cultural collision where the Spanish, uh, arrived what was the clash of realities there was it just straight up um, conversion by sword or how did those two cultures interact and over what time period because I imagine that's a pretty complex story but i mean I mean I'm interested my most interested because that's just way too big of a question I'm most interested in the magical and cosmological aspects of just two basically just two radically different uh, outlooks on reality. Uh, Colliding.
1: You know, I think what was what has personally what has been really interesting for me, um, and I write about this in, in a lot of my books, like for example, uh Ruiz Alarcon, he was a missionary, straight up like, you know, straight edge, like missionary guy, like God, like let's get rid of any kind of like supernatural kind of stuff, let's um Christianize or whatever with the indigenous people. Uh he notes that <laughs> instances of shapeshifters. You know, when I, when I, when I like, I, that's what I read about, like in, in animal medicine, my my fourth book, um, a, lo- a lot of instances of noting from these very straight edge, like missionaries, when they would see these miracles happening, wow. when they would see elements happening, when they would see famines happening, when they would see, you know, they tried to quell it, but it was something that like, when they're talking about like, no, this is going on, but they, but there was a really, it was, it was really hard because they all, when they came, they came with, um, airborne strain of syphilis. So it was air, it was
0: airborne. Yeah. What the Yeah. F- okay.
1: Yeah. Um, it was that's, airborne. That's it horrifying. 90% of the population died in a decade.
0: Damn. That makes COVID look pretty good. That's horrifying.
1: 90% of the population died in a decade.
0: Jesus. Sorry. So when came, wrong yeah, word when they, choice. Wrong word choice. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry.
1: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It was, just, it was horrific. It was horrific. It was horrific. Horrific, horrific, horrific. When they came, um when they came, so when they came, there were a lot of people that were not happy with the Mexica, aka the Aztec. Um, because when they came in, of the, the Aztec were were not the nicest of folks. They were amazing, they were uh, brilliant, and they were prolific sorcerers. Um, and they, they practice a lot of, um, you know, sacrifice and things like that. And not a lot of people were happy about a lot of their coming in and like, like really being, they were amazing warriors. And they went hand in hand with being amazing sorcerers as well. And they, they rose in power incredibly quickly, incredibly quickly. Like people that were, were, you know, living off of a marsh built this amazing city um, very shortly, and not a lot of people, Indigenous people, were were happy about that. Were happy about living under, uh, not happy about paying taxes. You know, to mm-hmm. yeah. you know, yeah, they weren't happy about. They they still got to keep. It was not like how we conquest here. It was nothing nothing like that. Where they still got to keep their their traditions and things like that, but they got heavily taxed for different things. Um, so when the Spaniards came, um, that was one of the things that that got their attention. You know, they were the one of the the diplomats, Malinalli, Malinsin that was the tongue for Cortes. She also was one of the ones that didn't like necessarily the the Mexica. Um, she she knew Nahuatl. She knew various Maya languages. She helped translate. She got she garnered a lot of help the Spaniards because if it wasn't for the help of the indigenous of the indigenous people, the Spaniards would not have made it. It was one specific battle specifically known as La Noche Triste, the sad night, where they got tumbled. But it was because the indigenous people like fed them, clothed them, took care of them, bought them to aid. Um they 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 they, they prospered. And they they felt like, oh we're gonna because they their their understanding of like conquer and conquest was very different from the Spaniards. The Spaniards are like, we're going to come here and take all your gold and, you know, break your system. Like they weren't used to, it was like two mm-hmm. different worlds, like very like opposite worlds. <laughs> like it was just completely yeah. foreign, right? That's why I like, asked. I mean, it's, I mean, I mean,
0: I, that's why I was asking about that collision. I mean, it's, oh, and- it was, it
1: was a, a completely foreign type of, of in that sense of like how they came in and what they did with the peoples. And it was very different. Um, in that sense, you know, of course, war is war, war is always brutal, but, um, so they, 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 they helped the Spaniards and, um, they fed them, they clothed them, they, they, they joined forces with them and, um, they helped bring down the Mexica. So when they brought down the this was, this was
0: after 90% of the population had died.
1: This is during that time. Okay, So you have, you have hundreds of people dying a day. Wow. Hundreds. And the worst part about it too is, is that what, because of its, it was different kinds of, it was not just syphilis. There were different, because they, they were, um, they came in with a lot of, I um, think Europe had gone through a lot of different plagues and they came in with a lot of those things, but they had, you know, anti antibi, antibodies to that, right? Their body had gotten immune to a lot of those things and they came in with a lot of different kinds of viruses that the indigenous people had never been exposed to. So one of the things that was done is that they did a lot of water limpias, baños, and they they bathed regularly. Like they bathed at least twice. Most of them bathed like twice a day because that was part of their ritual. Mm. And the water also became infested with the viruses. Mm. So their own rituals, they started dying from that as well because mm. the water got polluted with those viruses. And so we have hundreds of people dying, getting, you know, and, and you can see the pictures in a lot of the, the codices of um, people like, and just people having like like bumps all over their their faces of uh, different kinds of measles i mean it wasn't just like one virus they would get one virus at a time they would get like measles ch- chicken pox you name it at the same time and syphilis there you go you got yeah, a whole bam. awful you know it wasn't awful. like one virus you were exposed to like maybe five viruses you know oh, take your take yeah. your pick right oh,
0: at a time that must have been so- painful and awful
1: yeah, absolutely. No, it was, and and like it, it was, it was, and this is what was a lot of seers were seeing. That's the uh, that's why you know Cadigoo was like, um, you guys need to come back here. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, there just needs to be a restructuring of everything, you know. So, f-
0: um, from the Mesoamerican side, how was this perceived? Was this seen as the end of the world? And how were the how were the Spaniards perceived?
1: Well, when the when Cortes came, as um I mentioned in the book, when the Cortes came, he proclaimed that. You know, hey, I know your ancestors told you we were coming. Because that was something that, you know, as I mentioned, ancestor worship and deification was just as important as deity, and I would say even more important um to a large degree. Um, so he came and he 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 asserted that and that that, you know, giving him like some kind of uh oh well this is what what it is and they okay, so they he claimed this legitimate to legitimize his position, right? We're supposed to be here. We're going to bring in a new world, yada, yada. And that's what he's claiming. And and a lot of people there, there's, they kind of know what he's saying is true, but at the same time, they're not going to do any, they're not going to like lay over and not do anything about it. Right.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, so, and, and it was, it was, it was foreseen. It was something that was happening. So, um, after they, they lost the, the battle after the, the Aztec fell, it just brought a lot of terror to a lot of people and the people that were not nobles that were not worthy of, you know, cause a lot of people did align themselves with the Spaniards. Cause they, they thought, Oh, if I align myself, I'm going to be okay. But they weren't because a lot of, most of the people became, they, they became, um, they actually enslaved them. Hmm. Um, but they didn't make, you know, they, they died. <laughs> most of them would die. Like you get a slave and nope, oh, it died. Like the person dies right away. So, um, that, that was not a good, that was not something that, that was, they wanted like okay this, they can't make it was trade and then they had um, one missionary Bart- Bartamio de las Casas he wrote a lot about a lot of the atrocities because it was just the Spaniards were incredibly brutal they were just absolutely brutal um, were, horrible was horrible it, were, I mean horrible.
0: were there reasons for that.
1: The brutality?
0: Yeah. And when I say reasons, I mean, I, just for more context, is it just, for instance, were they sending, uh, as the English did, criminals? Uh, were, yes. I mean, what was going yes. Well, Why why was there so much brutality? Because I've heard yes. lots about the brutality, but I, I've never got a why for it.
1: Well, the worst of the worst were like coming over. There were, the, there were the ones who were like, I have nothing going on here. I can be in jail for the rest of my life. I got okay. nothing going on. I'm going to go there. They had nothing. They had nothing. So yeah, they came to the Americas, and as Pizarro said, and when one of the the conquerors, the conquistadores of Peru, we came here for your gold. Cortes says something along that along along the lines of that is too. It's like we didn't come here to Christianize you. We we came here for your gold. Mm-hmm. So there were also very much conflicting goals with who was actually here, and you know taking things and. You know, the conquistadores, they didn't care anything about the Spaniards. They didn't care. I, they would take the children and cut up the little children's feet and cook them up, burn them, because they didn't have any food. They Fucking were, hell. Yeah, I mean, like, horrific, 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 horrific. And the ah. missionaries, they're they're at a loss where they're trying to control these crazy Spaniards, but they're also, like, having to do... They're also trying at the same time, like, oh, my God, they're so worried, worried about the supernatural and the magic that's going on. And so it was just... um it was, it was it was horrific. It was pretty bad.
0: How long did that go on for?
1: I would say, you know, to to large degree. I mean, to some degree, it's it's settled. But I mean, in, in 1994, the Zapatistas mm. in um, it, it, Zapatistas took over after NAFTA was signed. Mm-hmm. They took up arms in Mexico, and now the the city there in San Juan Chamula is actually an independent city independent municipality in mexico because there's still a lot of indigenous people that are very angry (laughs) that they don't have their sovereignty they don't have rights to clean water to clean land so it's not like it's gone away there are a lot of people that are still not happy about things
0: yeah that's something i mean i I was It's interesting because i was just looking at this again recently that's something that if people who are listening to this don't know about they should really look up just google easy ln the the letters EZLN the Zapatistas. Um, it's amazing. Uh, people in the U S unless they are kind of activists or academics don't really get to know about that. I mean, like we're not, we're, we're pretty much kept in the dark about, uh, anything that happens outside of our little me- media bubble. Um, well,
1: absolutely. I learned after Vietnam. <laughs> like,
0: yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The people Cause they might get upset.
0: <laughs> yeah. That was the last time they were going to show coffins coming back. Um, yeah, no kidding. So in, in a sense, could you say that this is kind of still going on in the politics between uh, Absolutely. Uh, the Western, in the Western hemisphere politics, basically?
1: Absolutely. 100%. And in, in many Latin countries in Latin America, not just in Mexico, you know, a lot of like in Ecuador, in Peru, like a lot of indigenous people are still try, like, you know, and, and it's something that they uh, you know, it, they're still bringing attention to their rights, to land, to clean land, to clean water, to to sovereignty. And it's it's still a struggle. It's still a struggle. And that's why, you know, I and and I talk about it in different ways, even in my own mentorship, I integrate it too, because I'm still very much rooted in that social justice and keep that in mind. I remind people when I encourage the younger Gen Zs to take a look, get active, get involved. And that's why and and I feel that this, is, this has been this disconnect too, with a lot of especially with the, the younger um, Latinx folks that they don't feel a right to claim their indigeneity, why? Because oh, you know, because and, and I feel that you know back when I was in grad school, the term, for example, and I and I discuss this in my my book, um, you know, the term appropriation was not a bad word. The term appropriation was like, hey, let's look at culture the way cultures are developed, some of them, it's like pretty brutal. Some of them, it's a sharing. Some of it, it's learning. It's, it's, you know, different kinds of ways of doing things. You know, it's like, even for example, the Romans, they took a lot of the Greek, a lot of the Greek culture, a lot of the, they appropriate a lot of that, mm-hmm. right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they didn't do necessarily by war. They're just different kinds. Culture is a complex way, dynamic, it's developed, it's built. But when in, for example, in 2010, in Guatemala, there was um, what's known as the Pan Maya movement. Um, there were different leaders of Guatemala that came forward, and also, you know, curanderos, curanderas, parteras, midwives, um healers, different leaders that came, indigenous leaders that came forward, um, that said, you know what, we are gonna go ahead and reappropriate, reclaim that term Maya. Maya is from the Yucatan, okay? You could take Maya and these were like this is this was one. You know, it was the anthropologists, the Spaniards and, and a lot of people that said, "Okay, everybody's Maya. You all have these different you all have this, you know, similar architecture, this similar artwork, so you all are Maya, right?" But it was these people that said, "You know what, we've been you know, they were they were the Quiche. they were like different groups of people that were said, "You know what, you, we've been identified as Maya. We're going to go ahead and take that term Maya, but we're going to tell you what that is." Mm. So, uh, so a lot of, it, you have this too. And, and this started spreading a wild like wildfire, because I started like inspiring a lot of indigenous people in a lot of different countries to reclaim their indigeneity. And also people too, that were like, like, for example, like me, like Chicana, that were you know, my, I'm, I'm old school. Like it came from the Gen X generation where we are much, very much in your face. You know, we didn't cross the border, the border uh-huh. crossed us. Like I'm, together, <laughs> yeah, I'm indigenous. Yeah. Like that's, that's, that's my roots. You know, and we weren't, we weren't scared to like, like claim our indigeneity. Um, and, and, but at the same time, that's also what like, for example, myself too, when I got out of school, I graduated summa cum laude. I became a labor organizer. And I became in the, involved with the ECLN. I became involved in a lot of these things because hmm, I, want, okay, I felt very okay. much connected to my indigenous roots. Huh. I want, and I wanted to reconnect to that as well and to the peoples that were there. I didn't feel disassociated from it.
0: Can you talk right? about that period of your life? I mean, particularly working with EZLN, I mean, as much as you want to share on a podcast, of course, but um, what, what was going Were you, was that in the US or, 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 or down there? I mean, and what were you, what were you doing?
1: Well, it was basically like one was bringing up, like making sure that they had access to one was making sure that people knew what was going on so they can keep that land sovereign. Okay. Um, It was talking about it. It was raising monies for it, sending monies down there. I never, I went down there later on.
2: Okay. But during
1: that time when I was a labor organizer, I was working. um, I didn't come from money. So I wasn't like able to travel.
2: (laughs) Okay. At
1: that time. And and plus when I did go down there, I was meant doing mentorship. So I, I got involved in that way of as I said with social justice. When I went there it was to learn about the indigenous rights. It was also to learn about more of the healing aspects of it and also raise awareness to that. So it was it was it, it was it it was this, this space where it was very much intertwined with the social justice, with the healing work. Um, And my goal was, okay, let me learn about limpias. Let me raise awareness about this. And I was working with some of the leaders um, because I was, I was working, you know, and and the thing is also too, they, they, the Mexico would make it very difficult sometimes to cross into the lands. So you had to be like, oh, I'm going to um, Palenque. I'm going somewhere nearby, you know, as a tourist, because they didn't want um, gringas and then they didn't want Mexican folks that were helping them too. They they didn't make it easy and they created a lot of stops. So there was that too. It was, um, I wasn't, maybe I should have been scared. (laughs) But like looking back at it, it was, I was very surreal. You know, like, like little, like 15 year old boys with like, like, like being armed and, and, and like doing stop points of like, why are you crossing into this land? That Mm -hmm. was where the Zapatistas were at. Um, And like, you know, they let you cross. They were nice. But it was, I guess like they wanted to contain it as well, too. Um, so there was that concern too. It was it was a little bit surreal because of like going there had to be like, oh, I'm going in there as a tourist because they didn't give you that much slack if you were a tourist. If you were an activist, yeah, you weren't going in.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> they didn't care. you weren't going in. So that was one of the things like you were it, like it, 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 there were different things. there was those different considerations of understanding that, what's going on here in the us is different there in mexico like the police there they don't care like mm. first amendment rights like free speech they're like no like if you're going there as a tourist oh come on in okay <laughs> so it's it's like it's, it was like really surreal i've never been asked that but like looking back at it reflecting on that it was it was really bizarre and but like I should have been scared, you know, seeing like 15 year old boys with like guns, like rifles. Um, But at the same time, I I knew like I was, I was, at least I hope I was being like, okay. Like I was doing what I was doing and I I, I knew that they wanted tourists. They wanted to keep that. So I knew what to say. Okay.
2: You
1: know, you, you, like you, you kind of have to know those things too. Now it's, it's not so much. Um, You still have to know people like not, you can't just go in there into these towns. They don't let just tourists go in there. You have to know, you have to get permission. You um, have to get in touch with some people. It's not like you can just go cross in and out. And then before you get there, there's usually some kind of stop points with Mexico. The Mexican military are there.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Okay.
1: So it's, it's, it, it was, it's, it's kind of, it's sad.
0: So how did you walk when you had that experience? Did you walk away feeling lifted up or or down? I mean, what was your kind of emotional takeaway from that? Also, did you get to hang out with subcomandante Marcos? No, <laughs> oh, that's, that's too bad. That guy's no, got like, no. that guy must have I was, I was like
1: in that. I wasn't in that ingrained in that. I was, it was, I was there to study. I was there to study. I was there to, was there to do the limpias. It wasn't, I didn't have like, I had to pay, I had to pay my, my, you know, I didn't come from money. So it's not like I could, and I wasn't getting any grants to do that. Sometimes I did have that, like some, I knew one lady that got like a grant to do some, some work there to, to study there with the Zapatistas to learn with ECLN. That is done. But at that time when I was there, um, it was still a little too early. They didn't have, or at least I didn't have access to that. I was there dropping things off. I was there learning. I was there learning more. And that's, what I was focusing as learning more about the healing, learning more about limpias. Um, yeah. So no, I didn't get to, I wasn't like, it political
0: <laughs> kind of the general trajectory of this conversation? We were talking about the past. We we're talking about the present. Am I correct in, am I correct in the assumption that I've gotten from talking to you and reading your book that much like a lot of other, you know, pagan traditions, this kind of was there's was kind of a break in it. And that people who are trying to practice it now are kind of you know, resurrecting it but also reinventing it in a way. Would that be accurate to say?
1: There's a lot of it. There's a lot of different things. And it, it's it's different because, like for example, as I mentioned early on at the very beginning, is, is that and In the Yucatan specifically, you have a lot of indigenous people that held on to their rights. Like really, they they really did. And one of them being, um, I've never been, I've never met anyone from that tradition. But the Lacandon specifically, who have held on to their indigenous traditions. Of course, they've been. There's been some influences. Of course, you get influenced by Western. But they have been very, you know, staunch in holding on to their indigenous traditions. So there's that. Um, whether you get allowed into being a part of that and seeing that how I got in was, it was very much a uh, synchronistic. Um, it just kind of happened, kind of fell on my lap. It didn't, I wasn't really looking for it. Um, and there's also, of course, there are some of us who are like for myself included, a lot of us that are reclaiming it, as part of ours, reclaiming who we are, reclaiming these things that have been taken from us. Hmm.
0: Yeah, interesting. Let's uh, let's talk about. about I want to talk about magic and practicals. Let's talk about practical stuff. I mean, it's all practical, but, you know, practical magic, because your book is full of recipes and and rituals and all kinds of great stuff. My first question, um, kind of on behalf of the audience, is although this book is about a very specific tradition, uh, it's more broadly about ancestors. And is this a book that anyone can use, even if they're not part of, of your tradition, basically? Or is it only for people who are practicing this?
1: Hopefully it's, anyone can use it. I hope.
0: <laughs>
1: okay. I hope so. That's my, that was my, my hope and my, you know, and it is for us. Absolutely. Um, it, and this is the reason why is also too, because, you know, Mesoamerican peoples, um, they, they, as, as I was saying, and I've been explaining is that they looked as ancestors, as soul energies, and it wasn't simply blood. Family And de- definitely was blood. You know, an ancestor, like they they had ancestor when they went into to talk to a different um, leader from a different city state or they went into war, they would carry their ancestor bundles. You know, and it was it was everybody from who was fighting the, uh, was that was their ancestor. Everybody who was there as the diplomats was that was their ancestor. And it wasn't necessarily a blood family ancestor. Right. So these things are important to understand because. And, it, and I feel that it's something that's beautiful many is, is that a lot of these understandings, these rights of working with these sacred energies and how they looked at them and how they strengthen those connections with those ancestors is that you can have cultural ancestors and all of us, all of us have been a- affected by colonization and colonization has looked different throughout the hundreds of years of, you know, who has been the colonizer in different countries, in different places, and everybody has been affected by colonization. Everybody, whether you're BIPOC or you're not, does, doesn't matter. Everybody has been affected. So, there has been a lot of us who have possibly, to some degree, been disassociated, or possibly they want to expand and enrich their cultural understandings of not just beyond their blood family, but are connected, for example, maybe their interested in their Nordic traditions and they don't feel that connected to their great, great grandfather, great, great grandmother, but they want to understand Nordic traditions generally.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I feel that a lot of these rites can connect a lot of different peoples to what you're connected to as a cultural ancestor and work with those sacred energies that it's not just limited to, I mean, it's, I, I feel that these histories are fascinating. These rites are fast. Cause I, mm-hmm. I, ground it in that. I ground it in that because one of the things that I do mention is that I, I do integrate these histories and I I state where they come from because it is a process of decolonizing these histories. Mm -hmm. I'm not just going to say, Oh, well, you know, this is what we did. I'm saying, no, this is what it's found in the grave with this, with, I I give specific examples, like various different examples. And I ground it in that as, as Econa, I feel that's fascinating. But if you're not interested in that history, you can go straight to the rights and whoever you are, as long as you do it with respect, integrity, you can definitely use that, that, that right to connect with an ancestor you may want to connect with. And that maybe it's goes beyond blood, maybe a vocational, maybe somebody that you just, that, that folks have felt this really deep connection to. And I've had a lot of clients, um, you know, well I'd say not a lot but a few clients I would say that I can think of who are who identify themselves as white and they don't feel connected to their ancestors they don't even know who their ancestors are mm-hmm. <laughs> like yep. which I find that interesting they don't they don't know anything about like any like a lot of them they just don't know and um especially those who have come in with difficult um familial relationships so you know we talk about like well what, where do you where did your family come from what is this and you know and you can I it's it's borrowing from those rights as well and integrating them too and also to people that have had lost lost someone that has passed away. We had uh, for example, this these beautiful wailing rights and beautiful transition rights. And I alluded to one earlier. I'll talk about the transition right first, is that we had what are known, you know, as I mentioned, platicas, the heart straightening talks. That when before someone passed away, they went to the the, the curandera, the curandero, the curanderics and or the shaman, you would say, to basically release, release anything that was weighing heavy in your heart, talk about any wrongdoings, and the shaman would help you, or the curandera would help you to, one, balance those wrongs, but tell you like, okay, well, you have to make, you have to do this, you know, maybe you have to go and give um, these crops to these people you have to make amends you have to balance your wrongs this way or they would do various different rituals to help to balance those scales right because you wanted to make sure that the per- when the, before the person passed away had their soul energies intact and they didn't have because when they had resentment or anger they had done a lot of wrongs their hudo the abdomen could get you know adversely affected and they could have a very bad afterlife um, and then if they do, cause they did believe that they would come back, possibly continue to relive some of those things. Right. So a lot of their, their transitional rights of what is done, um, in terms of specific, specifically to, is to help somebody. Um, I had somebody come in with their mother who I knew had, had, they thought that she was, there was some kind of something attached to her. Um, and I talked to her and I said, no, she just had a lot of soul loss. And one of the things that we, we learned was that, uh, she, she shared with me is that she had been, um, she had been raped by her father. She had the children. She was, had to leave the house and it was, it was a lot of like serious trauma that she divulged in that platica. And it was part of releasing. And I did a ceremony where Got a jade, and I got you know, soul, had had those soul pieces come back to the jade piece, and I instructed her family to make sure that she was buried with that jade. So even though maybe she wasn't ready to care for those soul pieces, those soul pieces would be able to attach when she would pass and restore and make it more graceful for her. And also, too, I've had people that when they're they're they have somebody where they know that they're going to pass away. I had one client whose brother was going to be passing away, and you know, I instructed her, you know, how to hold space and to give platica as anything that he needed to release anything that they needed to share. And also she gave him a baño, a cleanse with water, with, um, with rue, with lavender, with basil and him and talk to him and doing things that, cause in Western traditions, how, how we handle death generally is very, um, uh, it's very problematic. I would say just to put it nicely
0: uh, in, in, in what way
1: people are, are like, okay, you died, hurry up and get over it. Or, you know, oh, that person is dying. Like, yeah, that happens. Mm-hmm. Get over it. Mm-hmm. They're not really able to like, a, uh, like if someone passes away, it's not like you're, you're given like a leave to process it. Maybe if you're lucky, you have an employer that that is is generous and will help you with that. But it's not something that's supported because um, that's 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 horrible some like someone we love passes away it's there's a loss there um and then there was there was a whole system that was in place that that held space for those people when they were about to transition to help them to transition gracefully and when they did transition um they had for example whaling they, they did various things I'm just naming one of them being the whaling rights they had one whaling rights where they would have the entire community come out and hold space for the family that had lost somebody and that family would come out and would, for example, if it was the husband would come out and be dressed in the, um, the the vestments, the clothing of that husband, the accessories, um, the, the, you know, whatever it is that that they, they were wearing and they would be dressed in that or they would be carrying them and they would do, they would wail, not, not cry. They were, they were held space, to wail for hours mm. and they were being cleansed with Gopal. They were being cleansed to like, they were encouraged to really release, really cry. Like not just not, not like just simple crying, but like wail, wail cry. And there was a, a dancing and they, the whole, after like hours and hours of that in a day, the whole family, the, the community after that would go around to the family and continue to cleanse them and make offerings to them you know, to help them in their transition, make offerings, you know, along with limpias, along with cleanses would, um, give them food, would give them clothing and it isn't just stop there. But those kind of things, I feel like those rituals, those grieving, those, those passing rituals are, are so, and it was very interesting because when I started writing the book, I had so many people come to me for that. Um, and you know what, and it wasn't just people that were passing away from like COVID. It was various kinds of things. And, it was my ancestors saying like, um, yeah, you, these traditions aren't something that you're going to just be writing in a book, you know, share these traditions, share these, these ceremonies. And I, and I began doing that with a lot of my clients and helping them and, and, and helping them do it. And I, and I just saw it in them. And one of them, like, for example, my client who, who, whose brother passed away, she was, when she was saying the eulogy for him, You know, she was crying and stuff, but she was a rock for her family. She was holding space for her family, like where everybody was crying. You know, holding space for them because she had already had those processes with me of crying, of of grieving, of processing it in a way that was a space of like, what do you need to process this? What do you need to grieve? It's almost like um, you know, and it's it's. I feel that a lot of times too, when people initially come to me and they talk about a death. They, they began, one of the first, when they if they cry, one of the first things they say, they're they're sorry for crying. And I look at them, and I say, honey, please cry. This is the space for that. This is part of the purging. It, this is part of the limpia. Please cry if you need to cry. To encourage people like in those rites and to do it in a way that's beautiful and ceremonial that people have a space to release the heaviness from their heart. And also if if someone is transitioning, is to hold space for that other person that's transitioned in a beautiful way. That's that that we honor. And of course, there's always you're going to miss the person. You're going to love that person, but in a way that feels lighter, in a way that feels healthier and more loving for everybody involved. So I feel that these ceremonies, these traditions, are not just meant for BIPOC for Latinx. It's something that can be helpful for all of us. Mm. <laughs>
0: So if a client comes to you and says they want uh, help c- connecting with their ancestors, or I would say, you know, becoming involved in this work, but maybe let's just keep it to connecting to ancestors to be specific. What would you tell them?
1: Well, one, I would i begin to asking them because like, for example, one lady came to me and that's what she, it was soon. You know, and sometimes people don't know. Um, people have not a lot of people have not been associated. Some people are. Some some people can give like a deep, deep line of what their ancestry is, their DNA. And they have pictures of all their great-great-grandmother, great-great-grandfather. And that's, that's beautiful. They have all of that. And I'll, I'll ask them, is that who you want to work with? You know, I'll find out that. You know, wh- what is it that who they want to work with is it, or an elder that they have in there? So I find out that. And if there is, so, and I'll give this example that I worked with somebody who didn't have that connection. She's a little bit of that connection. She her roots were from Nicaragua, Nicaragua in Mexico. And this is not the, the lady who I, I talk about in my book. I have different clients that come from different traditions, of course. And this just happened to be somebody that was from Nicaragua and um, mother was, was Mexicana, Mexico. Um, and she was coming in and, and she for, for her living, what she does, she does choreography for salsa dancing. And one of the things that I I recommended was, was to create a space in her dancing space where she's doing the choreography is to recognize the cardinal spaces the east the west the north the south and create like have something that's symbolic of those cardinal spaces and when she is dancing to allow her ancestors to dance through her to teach her because she has an, an you know a profinity, like she, she loves like acclivity, like proclivity for, for dancing. She has a love and affinity for dancing. It's more than likely that her ancestors, one of her ancestors that is already with her also has that love also has that connection. So it's asking people, what do they already love? Because it's more than likely that their ancestor also loves that as well. And is already watching over them on some level already has that connection on some level. And it's just about, Opening up to that and strengthening that connection and allowing ourselves to open up to those sacred energies so we can feel that there's more around us than meets the eye.
0: How about altars? Um, Altars play such a big role in this book and people love altars. So um, talk about your experience building altars, how people can maybe get started building their own ancestral altars. Um, but I mean, you take it to new levels, uh, in this book. I mean, some of the stuff in, in, in the photo section is pr- pretty phenomenal. Um, talk about, <laughs> talk about that.
1: So, you know, one of the things that I asked you, um, for example, I was talking to one of my neighbors who comes over with her, with their puppy. So she, uh, the puppy plays with our puppy. We have puppy play dates. Um, and she's Taiwanese and she was just interested. You know, I never really talk about what I do with my neighbors because, I just say I'm a consultant. (laughs) It just makes things easier. (laughs) And um, you know, she 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 happened to ask, like, so what do you do? Cause she happened to be an attorney. And we had that, and like, and I told her what I'm doing. She's like, Oh my god, can I see one of your books? And I, I shared with her one of the books, and she began like she just began sharing with me like her her stories and her connections with um, you know, how she feels about with her ancestors that she doesn't She has that connection. She's going back to Taiwan actually shortly in a couple of months to visit, but she doesn't really feel the pull to create um, an ancestor altar. And one of the things I, I guess she has a a, a daughter too. And that, you know, I was reminding her too that, you know, how we have El Dia de los Muertos, the three days that's recognized. um, Well, actually a lot of folks, you know, honor El Dia de los Muertos is the three days where it could be a temporary altar too, that I reminded her too that it could also be um or a, a medicine bundle an, an ancestor bundle right cuz she said you know I'm not, I'm not really feeling the pull to create a, a permanent altar um i just i don't feel that yet um and it's one of those things that i, I recommended it. it's like well why about you know what are some sacred days in your tradition that um that are that are sacred that that you honor were the ancestors and i encourage her because her to encourage that her daughter to teach about these things to her daughter, that to teach about the culture and she doesn't lose that, those connections to Taiwan, to, to what those d- beautiful dances are, the Taiwanese and, and what are the traditions there with their ancestors. And, you know, and, and we started then talking about Buddha, Buddhist altars and what they put there with the mm. oranges. So I find out a lot of things is one I want to find out first. And what I recommend to you is that tune into whether it's something that you want to make it more, because a lot of times it's easier and it feels depending on where somewhere, somewhere is, someone is at, um, whether at in their spiritual or they're not spiritual culture can be a very wonderful way to connect us spiritually, whether, you know, it's like creating with arts and crafts. And I have all these beautiful things of like doing it with calaveras, with skulls, like, um, calavera, like sugar skulls, creating sugar skulls, scenes with skeletons um, and finding out like, what is it like creating those space, special days to, to then sit with your family to talk about what were the traditions in the family? What were the hmm. traditions of, because it is, if someone has, has a family, so it doesn't just get whitewashed, you know, tra- traditions don't every people's traditions don't just get whitewashed and forgotten about, but what are our spe- specific roots, so we come in and we don't feel like we all have to get whitewashed from that. But we come in and we share and asking and maybe at the beginning it's going to be temporary. It's going to be a temporary altar on specific days, and maybe we we have like specific aspects of those temporary altars around our house, you know, uh, different idols. Um, and and one it was just very interesting. She was sharing with me like how she noticed a lot of the Buddhists, you know, like the altars for Buddha and what are the offerings. And she's like, oh, now I'm going to be so interested to go when she goes to Taiwan for the, for the, um, you know, she's going to be going in a couple of months and looking at the different temples is to make sure to tune in first, what feels in alignment? Because if it doesn't feel in alignment, we're not going to take care of the altar. And we want to make sure that we, if we're going to have a permanent altar, we're not going to like, just leave it there, like getting dusty. <laughs> right, like I say, well, I was kind of into you, Ancestor, but that feeling is gone. You know?
0: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah,
1: Sorry, <laughs> just a fad. Sometimes people um, do
0: that with their living family.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so I, I say first tune into what feels right for you. And honor that. And, and they have no judgment about it. Have no judgment that you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do that, it's supposed to look like this, any of that nonsense, right? First start out with what feels right for me. What, st- what felt right for me and what my ancestors felt it was right, for example, the bundle that I got in 1999. I didn't even, uh-huh. I wasn't looking for, I didn't have an altar. I didn't have an ancestor altar, but my ancestors, um, they guided me to an ancestor bundle, you know, initially. And I didn't even know about ancestral bugnals until later my mentors taught me about them. Like, oh, yeah, that's a thing. That's where you know that was that was traditionally done in, in our culture, in our indigenous cultures with your ancestors. That's how they were honored. They they were held. They were and, and it's it's like really tuning into that. And that's what what I, I began putting and working with that ancestor under. I would sleep with it, I would take with it in different ceremonies. It was my my traveling companion of my ancestral entourage, right? And then eventually, now it's actually part of one of my altars. Like it's become stationary, um, and that 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 was an involvement that evolved with my own spiritual practice of connecting with my ancestors. And now I have various ancestral altars throughout my house. I have, you know, it's so that's very important. First is to tune in what feels right for you, because initially we can have a bundle, an ancestral bundle which could be a a regular cloth. It could be a hide. It could be a shawl. That's from one of our ancestors that we put somewhere and we put it with our sacred items, whether it's a whistle, uh, maybe it's a feather, it's a feather fan. We put there with our sacred items and we put pictures of there, what we connect to as our ancestors. And we start taking it with us to different sacred sites we take it when we go to a different ceremony and it becomes a part of us and travels with us and sometimes it sits on our altars and so i would say first tune into what you can commit to because we're, you know it is a little bit it, it can be something what, what feels in alignment for you um because having a permanent altar is you know every day i wake up i make offerings of gopal I I refresh their water, you know, every week, every week they get, everybody gets fresh water. I I put different kinds of of flowers on different days. Um, So there's that commitment of what are you ready to commit to? (laughs) Cause I do not you know, that's, that's something, yeah, this is something like we're honoring, we're connecting, we're, we're showing our honor and respect. And we also have to see like, what, what feels in alignment with us. Is it a medicine bundle, an ancestral bundle that we're carrying with us that is, you know, travels with us? It is, is it a temporary a bundle that's more premised more on our culture and honoring those ancestors on particular days? And maybe we take it apart and we put it in different parts of our house? Or maybe it's a permanent altar that stays permanent where our ancestors sleep, where our ancestors rest, where they always have a home, where they always have and they can get fed by our smoke, our offerings, our ofrendas, and they always have that we care for that home. What is in alignment for us? I would say, I would recommend that's where I would say start from there.
0: All right. Well, maybe that's a great practical point to wrap up on. This is an awesome conversation. Uh, I, I learned a lot, covered a tremendous amount of ground here. Um, how can people find out more about you, get, uh, get your books and uh, find out uh, more about your work
1: so um they can go people can find out with um website realizeyourbliss.com and if they go they scroll they go to the very bottom they can see all my social media handles i'm very active in um, my instagram page and i post tiktoks every now and then my videos and i'm active on on twitter too so if they want to connect with me there as well um and my books i would say you can find my books like most bookstores, they have them. If if they don't have them, there at the store. Of course, you can, you know, order it online and they'll get it for you. And um, please and thank you for for first supporting your local bookstores because they are very important parts, pillars of our communities. Um, yes. <laughs> so I'd say first go to your local bookstore, you know, and if they don't have it there, order it there on their line and they can always get it. Um, and then, of course, at the larger ones, Amazon and Barnes & Noble, they have it there. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But uh, that's that's my little spiel. You know, I'd like to support our stores. I don't want them to go extinct.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, I feel like there was a ton more we could continue covering, but we're at that two hour mark. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show and share your wisdom.
1: You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K.me, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class and until next time, hang in there.